three weeks down. Yay! Uh, let's see. Exam coming up. Boo! <laughs> or yay? No? 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 Okay. Didn't think I was going to get a yay out of that one. It's okay. My other class has their exam today, so you're less lucky. What yes? What kind of uh, tests are they? Do they fill in the blank or they essays or what? They are a combination of fill in, of fill in the blank and multiple choice. Are you a word bank kind of guy? Am I a word bank kind of person? No. no. You're, a, you're a straight out of memory kind of person. But I, if you recall, and maybe if you think everyone was here, you are allowed to print out those summary sheets that I have on D2L and bring those with any other notes you want to write on them. So you can, so any, you may find, that way, that way, that's why I don't give you a word bank. Most of the words, I won't guarantee all of them, but most of them will be in those summary questions. So you can print those out, you can sketch in answers to them, you can use those as a reference. No other books or notes. But you don't have to worry about that. There are essay questions. My essay questions are like the homework questions minus the math. So ignore the math questions on the homework. The essay questions are like that. You can answer them sometimes in a couple of sentences, maybe a paragraph. Maybe make a table, depending on what it's asking you. So those, that's my, my essay isn't a five-page essay to finish in 50 minutes. Actually, you've got four, essay, four essays. Six essays, choose four is what I usually do. So that way, if something just slips your mind, as long as three of them don't slip your mind, you're fine. One or two, you're okay. But there's a total of about, usually doing about the same length, so 12 multiple, yeah, it's 30. Oh, this one doesn't count. This one counts them separately. But yeah, six essays, uh, six or seven fill-ins, and about 12 true-false, 12 multiple choice. So usually isn't too bad. You've got the whole, you'll have the whole class period to work on it. So. Most of the time people are finished earlier than that. There's nothing else to do that day. So if you finish it in 25 or 30 minutes, you're done. So, and then I'll hopefully have them up and graded that afternoon. I usually try to get them graded that day so you'll actually know. Uh, Monday actually is the last chance to drop without a grade. So I try to have it, to have it back for you. Just in case, everybody will stay, right? But you know, just in case you're borderline or decide I want to get out of here, that's your last chance to actually get a partial refund. So beyond that, you're, you're stuck. So, so exam coming up on Monday. And we'll cover chapter 0, 1, and 2 as far as I get through it. If I don't quite finish the last section on here, I'll just leave that for the next exam. So that way we'll still have the exam on Monday. And I'm not saying, well, we didn't finish far enough. Now the exam is on Wednesday. We'll keep it on Monday as scheduled. I just may adjust some of the questions if we don't quite cover that material. Homework 2 is due next Friday. I gave that out before. If anyone didn't get it, I got a copy so you can pick one up uh, between class and lab if you like. Uh, quiz 2 will be available next week covering chapters 2 and 3. And first article review due on the 20th. I still have the setup there. I forgot to put up the new ones, so if you're looking for new ones, especially the people who've been here before and you want them, send me an email reminder so that I see your email and say, oh yeah, I've got to put those up there, because otherwise I think about it like, oh, I'm checking the class, getting ready to come into class, and I should have put those up there two days ago, and I forgot. So if you really want to see new ones, especially for those who have been here before, just send me a quick email. I don't mind, you know, it's a reminder for me, oh yeah, I've got to go do that and I'll load them up for you. And then the other thing coming up that I've added in, is the iTunes quiz. Uh, the iTunes quiz is on the pictures of the day. Um, this one will cover the first set of pictures from the 19th of August when we started through the 13th of September. And it will be a set of 12 questions from those pictures, from any picture of the day during that time. Doesn't mean it's necessarily one we went in class, could do yesterday's picture or others. So you want to take a look at them daily. You don't have to study them in great detail or spend hours making notes on it. I'll usually look at the picture and I'll take a relatively, uh, relatively, e relatively easy question, I hope, off of something that either I would have talked about if you listen to the podcast or that you'd have you know, something based on there or that you can find in the information. So relatively, hope, usually people do relatively well on them. So set of 12 questions randomly chosen from those dates. And that will be available for the whole week. And I just do that because it matches up exactly when, when I put the quizzes up for my online classes. They get the whole week. I give you the whole week so everything matches up. And I'm not trying to do theirs ending on the 10th and yours ending on the 13th. Makes it a little bit easier for me. So you'll have a little bit of extra time for that one. So questions on anything coming up? 
No, no, no. All right. All right, picture of the day for today is uh, the center of our galaxy, actually. It's called the quiet Sagittarius A star, which is referring to the, well, Sagittarius A is the radio source at the center of the galaxy. A star is referring to the actual center of the galaxy itself. And we're looking here not at the entire galaxy, but just at the central portion of it, and then even blown up even further in the close parts. Center of our galaxy isn't visible to us in normal visible light. So what you're looking at here is not a picture taken by Hubble Space Telescope or anything else that you know, could see that in visible light. It's actually a combination of infrared light that you're seeing, which is the reddish and there's some yellowish coloring there. Thank you. And x-rays that we see from the center of the galaxy. So you're really looking at infrared light, which is better at penetrating the dust that is between us and the center of the galaxy, and on x-rays. When we zoom in on x-rays, you're actually seeing the very central portion there. I think it said that's about a half a light year across, that central portion. Uh, there's the black hole at the center of our galaxy. No, you're not seeing the black hole. You're seeing the material around the black hole. The black hole itself would not be visible, is not emitting anything, and not emitting any energy by the definition of a black hole. It can't emit anything. But the material spiraling into it can get heated up to incredibly high temperatures and emit x-rays. And that's what we're seeing there is an x-ray source. The reason it's called quiet, it's emitting all these x-rays, how can it be very quiet, is that it doesn't emit near as many x-rays as we'd sort of expect from models, from what we think of a black hole. It's only absorbing a very small amount of the material that is going into it, a very tiny fraction. And that's why when we talk about galaxies later on and we look at some very distant galaxies that are extremely bright, bless you, extremely bright, extremely active, they're absorbing a lot more material into their central black hole. So there's something different about this black hole and in fact a lot of, about a lot of them that are nearby in nearer galaxies, they don't seem to be near as energetic. So there's either not as much material or something has evolved with the black hole and the material around it so that instead of absorbing the material into it, the material gets pushed out away from the black hole in different streams. We see that in some areas too. So picture of a black hole there. No, you don't. Again, you don't see the black hole. You're seeing the energy being produced as material is spiraling in close to that black hole. They will expanding in size. The size of a black hole is given by what we call the event horizon. That's the outer. That's not. That's not a part of a black hole. It's a area from which the escape velocity from that level is greater than light, so nothing can escape from it. That expands. If you put more material in the black hole, the event horizon will move out. The black hole itself, as a singularity, stays the same. I mean, it's technically under theoretical concepts right now. It's a point. So a point doesn't get any bigger. It's just everything is collapsed down to nothing, all this matter in zero space. So technically, that doesn't get any bigger in size. Now, whether there's things we don't understand about gravity, that that's different, once you get inside there, we don't know yet. We don't understand what goes on really within that event horizon. But the event horizon itself will grow. If you put more material in it, it will get bigger and bigger, that region. Yes, sir? You said it it actually pushes away material. The material that's spiraling into it actually gets pushed away from it, uh, sort of in jets or streams away from the center of the galaxy. Yeah, somehow as it's spiraling in, instead of all going in, it goes out like perpendicular. So you have this big disk surrounding it, and then all the material comes out perpendicular to that disk. And we see that. We see that in a lot of other galaxies, too. But probably try, trying to wonder why our galaxy is so quiet, but it's not just our galaxy, it's a lot of galaxies around that are close to us. The nearby galaxies, the ones that we see as they are right now, it's the problem with astronomy. You don't see everything as it is this second. Right? We see our galaxy as it, as it is well, close to now, but we see the Andromeda galaxy as it was two million years ago. Other galaxies, we see them as they were a billion years ago, or five billion, or ten billion. Well, what did our galaxy look like ten billion years ago? Can't tell you. But it would have been probably quite different than it is today. Other questions? Before we jump back into chapter two? No, no, no. Alrighty. 
All right, let's see. We were working on the radiation laws. And I've given you the first one here. And the first of the radiation laws is Wien's law. Which really just says that the peak wavelength, that bless you. Uh, depends on the temperature. But not directly as the temperature get, gets bigger, gets higher, as the object gets hotter, the wavelength at which it primarily emits light gets smaller. So a very hot object, material spiraling into a black hole, heated up to very, very high temperatures, emits a lot of x-rays, extremely short wavelengths. A gas cloud sitting out in space, the very top one up there, very cool temperatures emits most of its wave most of its radiation at very long wavelengths. So the wavelength at which material is be at which light is being emitted primarily depends on what the temperature is. So a very low temperature up here, the peak is way off beyond the infrared into the radio portion of the spectrum. A star like the sun emits a lot of light across emits radio waves, it emits x-rays but most of its light is emitted in the visible portion of the spectrum. And again, like as we saw in the picture of the day, a very hot object, material spiraling into a black hole, will emit x-rays. So the first radiation law, it's the one I went over, we went over last time, says that the wavelength, wherever most of your energy is coming out, depends on the temperature, but depends inversely to the temperature. So as the temperature goes up, the peak wavelength that we see for that object will go down. What's going to happen in the future, we'll get to the future history of the sun coming up in a few chapters, the sun is going to expand and cool off. So it's going to get a lot cooler. It's about 6,000 degrees now. It's going to go down to about 3,000 degrees. Cut, cut its temperature about in half. It's also going to get a lot bigger and swell up and swallow us. But the temperature is going to go up a lot or down a lot, means that the wavelength of where it's primarily emitting that light is going to increase. Lower temperature, larger wavelength. So the sun is yellowish right now. What color is it going to be when it cools off? It's going to look red. It's going to cool off and its wavelengths are going to switch to longer wavelengths and it's going to appear reddish in the sky. It'll be a big, bright red star. We call a red giant star. It'll be much larger than typical uh, ordinary star like the sun. And it will be a very red in color because its temperature has gone down. Now, the second radiation law, that's the one we went over last time, was an equation, but it's the Stefan-Boltzmann law. which really says that the energy, the amount of energy is equal to some constant, don't worry about it, really what you need to think about is this, the temperature. It says that the amount of energy, it's calculated as energy per unit area, meaning that each square meter on the surface of the sun emits so much energy. So not how much energy the sun emits is total, how much each area, each unit section, each square meter, each square foot, each square inch, however you want to measure it, emits on the surface of the sun or in any other object. It depends on the temperature. So the amount of energy we get from a star depends on how hot it is. If we then have a star at the temperature of the sun, whoops, not the sun in the future, how about the sun right now, 6,000 degrees, 6,000 kelvins. And if we had a hotter star, and there are stars that are twice as hot as the sun, 12,000 kelvins, how much more energy is that star emitting? It's not twice as much, right? 6 to, two, six to 12, it's twice as hot, but it's not twice as much energy. It's 2 to the 4th power times. So twice, as, twice the temperature, 2 to the 4th power. 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, 16. 
So doubling the temperature gives you 16 times more energy out of every square foot on the, on the star. Lot more energy. Um, if you were to decrease it, if you were to go down to from 6,000 Kelvin to 3,000 Kelvin, now you're half the temperature. Now it's half the temperature is one half to the fourth power, which is one sixteenth. So when the sun gets, when the sun expands and cools off, its temperature will go down by about a factor of two. That means that every, you know, every square meter on its surface is going to be emitting one sixteenth the amount of energy that it was before. But it'll be emitting a lot more energy in total because it's going to expand so much larger that there'll be a lot more than 16 times the number of square meters on its surface. It'll get a lot bigger, so that will overwhelm this. But in terms of how much energy is being emitted by each section of that sun, it's going to be a lot less than it was before. The hotter the temperature, the more energy is being emitted. And not just at double the amount or you know, the squared amount four times as we looked at it with gravity, but the fourth power. So really a big change in the temperature. A little change in the temperature it makes a big difference in the amount of energy. One of the ways that we know that the sun has been relatively constant in temperature for billions of years is because of this. Okay? If the sun had changed, you know, even gotten 10% hotter, a couple hundred degrees, that would make a big difference in the amount of energy we were getting from the sun. So you'd see really wild swings in, you know, burning up the earth or freezing the earth. Not just ice ages or anything else like that, but well beyond that. If you think about the sun being, you know, even a few hundred degrees hotter, the amount of energy goes up tremendously. So you'd have a lot more energy going on, energy coming from the sun, and we'd have seen wild, wild swings in temperature if the sun had not been very constant at close to this 6,000 degrees for almost five billion years now. So again, don't worry about the constant. There's no, no calculations involved with these. Uh, the main thing is you know, this type of thing that, it, like with gravity, if you double the force of gra- double the distance between two objects, the gravity will go down by a factor of four. This kind of thing is all you need to to be able to look at for this. Alrighty. On to spectroscopy then. Now we've mentioned this a little bit. A spectroscope is a astronomical device or a scientific device that takes light and splits it up into its component colors. When you normally look at something, you just see all the white light mixed together. And what is done is that you take your light source, could be a a light bulb here, could be a star, could be a distant galaxy, and you focus that light, you collect all the light, so you you bring it here so it's all coming in parallel. And you collect just a tiny section of that through a slit. When you send that beam through a prism or other types of instruments that can be used, it will split the light out. So just like a rainbow forms, uh, rainbow forms, you split, go send light through, you know, um, raindrops. You can do the same thing with a prism here, or we call a diffraction grating, to be able to split up the light into its component colors. So the red light gets bent a little bit, the blue light gets bent a lot and you send that through another lens and bring it to a focus and then you can see there's all the red light bent only a little bent a little bit there's all the blue light bent in great detail so we can actually see we can actually see the uh, spectrum of a star this is how we learn everything we can about stars with just looking at the light and how much energy is coming from it we can learn some things about the temperature but in order to really learn in detail about what's going on with the star, we need to really look at the spectrum of the star. The spectroscope is just that device. This is it in great detail. The other ones I'm going to show you are sort of um, cut down a little bit just to show the basics of it. But really, that's all it's doing is taking the light, splitting it, uh, taking a beam of it, splitting it into its component colors, and then expanding that out so you can look at this not just as, there's a pretty rainbow, right? What does that tell you? But when you can expand that out enough, you can really learn a lot more about that, the object that you're looking at. I'm sorry. 
No, it'll work for any. It'll work for any light. Now, of course, different instruments used to get the wavelengths. You, know, you don't use a prism for you know, prism isn't going to work for you know all of them. It might work for infrared. Won't work for ultraviolet, right? Because ultraviolet won't go through glass. So you have to use different instruments in sometimes, but you can use it for any type. And you can do a spectrum in the radio part. Radio spectrum. You can take a radio spectrum too in similar ways. So you can use it for other. Typically what I'll talk about it is in terms of optical light, but you can use it in others as well. Now, when you do that, when we look at different objects, we can see different, uh, different views. We get different things we can see. And one example of what we can see are what we call emission lines. And we're going to see actually there's three different types of spectra. We saw a continuous spectrum. We can see an emission spectrum. An emission spectrum means you do exactly the same thing. That's why I said this has been simplified down now so you're not seeing all those lenses and everything else. All the same instrumentation is still there. But essentially you're taking this gas, a heated gas, sending that light through the slit and bringing that over here and focusing it on your screen and seeing that instead of seeing a whole rainbow you get a red line maybe a green line, maybe a blue line, and some violet lines. And that's it. It's dark in between them. So we got a continuous spectrum. We have an emission spectrum. So an emission spectrum, we're just seeing certain bright lines. Those bright lines tell us what that object is made up of. And in fact, what I have probably for next week's lab, I didn't, didn't have time to get it set up for today, but for next week's lab we're actually going to look at some of these. So I'll actually get some spectrum tubes and you'll have a chance to take a look at, the, to look at different elements through a spectroscope and see the different patterns that occur. But that pattern can tell an astronomer what the object is made up of. So by learning depending on the temperature of the object and what lines we see, we can learn what, is, what elements are actually there and how much of them. Uh, we can also measure velocities, how fast the object is moving based on those lines. Depending on where they are relative to where they should be. Sometimes they get moved a little bit and we'll talk about that. That's our last section of this, of this chapter. So we can learn about the compositions, we're learning about the temperatures and how, how the objects are moving. Again, just by studying the light that comes from them. So that's the emission lines. And here's some examples. Here's how we can use it to identify elements. There's, uh, there's high hydrogen up at top. So hydrogen has a bright red line. Very strong red line. Uh, we saw that probably in some of the photos. When you saw any nebula that glowed red, it's see, you're seeing the glow of this red hydrogen line. That hydrogen is emitting that specific wavelength. Hydrogen doesn't emit anything else until you get down here towards the blue and the purple. There's a complete gap there. Hydrogen only has those very specific wavelengths that it will emit. Sodium, in the visible part of the spectrum, emits a couple of yellow lines and that's about it. Now I should say that's not all the lines it emits. Hydrogen emits a lot of lines way down here in the ultraviolet, a lot of lines way out in the infrared and the radio. But in terms of visible spectra, which is what I'm talking about right now, it's very limited. It's just this very specific pattern. So if we see this, we know that hydrogen is present. If we see this pattern of two lines, we know that sodium is present. Helium. Looks a little bit like hydrogen, doesn't it? You've got a red and you've got some down here in the blue. And, but you've got this yellow one. So a helium stands out by that. Neon, right? You've seen a neon sign. They glow a lot in the red and the yellow. That's all the helium. Helium likes to give out reds and yellow emission. And mercury gives out a wide variety of lines as well. So mercury gives some purples, yellows, not much in the red. You see how the patterns are all different. So if an astronomer can look at an object and look at its spectrum, you can determine what it's made up of. Determine what elements compose it. If we know a little bit about the temperature, then we can figure out how much of each element is there. It also depends very strongly on what the temperature is. Now the third spectrum is an absor absorption spectrum. 
Now this requires two things. The first one, when we saw a continuous spectrum, we were just looking at that hot light bulb. When we saw an emission spectrum, we were just looking at the gas. An absorption spectrum occurs when you take a hot bulb or a hot star. That would emit a continuous spectrum. When that passes through this gas cloud, that gas cloud absorbs out certain wavelengths. Those wavelengths are exactly the same as, as the ones we saw in emission. Exactly the same, just in this case, they're being absorbed. This light is uh, white light, all the colors of the rainbow. Certain wavelengths are absorbed out and disappear. So when we look at this on this screen, now you get, there's the red, but there's this gap here. And there's these gaps down in the green and blue and violet. We're still looking at hydrogen. So we're still looking at hydrogen, just in this case we're seeing a continuous source behind it. So really what these do, it depends on how you're looking at this combination of a hot light bulb a cool, and a cool and a different cool gas, how you're looking at those two objects. And depending on how you look at them, if you look at just the light bulb, you get a continuous spectrum. If you look at just the gas, you get an emission spectrum. If you look at the combination, if you look at the light bulb through the gas, you actually get an absorption spectrum. But the lines that we see are exactly the same. Gets a little more complicated in real life. There's a detailed spectrum of the sun. Recognize all the lines that I've showed you on the other ones? Probably not, right? The hydrogen one is up there. Where's hydrogen? Probably right about there, very distinct hydrogen line. And then we had, what, the sodium? That pair of sodium lines. Of course, it's really stretched out here. You're seeing it in great detail from almost infrared way up here. Red, orange, yellow, all the way down through, heading towards the ultraviolet. Gets a lot more complicated than the very simple ones I was showing you first. When you try to, try to understand what's going on in the sun, if you look at the sun in detail, you can find, what is it, 91? 91 elements. The 91 naturally occurring elements up through uranium. Yes, uranium is 92. There's actually element 43 is unstable. And it has a shorter half-life that it still, it still doesn't exist from when the sun formed, if there was any that formed with the sun. So every element is in there. You can find lines of gold, you know, mercury, platinum, lead. Anything you want to find, anything you want to find there, you can find every one of those 91 elements present in the sun. And in fact, in greater quantities than they're here on the earth. Right? There's a lot, there's a lot, so much gold in the sun, you know, make a solid gold earth. Easily. Can you get it out of there? You know, if you got the way to mine it, you, you, got, you got a lot of money there, right? Or maybe not, maybe if you get that much gold, who cares? Well, gold's worth nothing. But there's a lot of gold, there's a lot of gold there, there's a lot of platinum there. Iron, copper, everything else is there. It's overwhelmed by the amount of hydrogen. 90% of the atoms are hydrogen. But every single element is there. And that's kind of what this slide is, is meant to show you. They're all there. And it's not quite as simple as I showed you those other ones. Oh, there's the hydrogen pattern. Easy. There's helium. I can see the difference. Now you've got to look through all of this. And this is where you know, computer technology helps in trying to be able to identify, identify lines. Uh, that and, you know, just a trained eye being able to look and identify and saying, you know, I know that pattern. Now, the sun gets in much more detail than we see most stars. Sun is so close and so bright, we can split its light out and get a great detailed spectrum. If we tried to do this for a distant star or a distant galaxy, you wouldn't be able to get near this much detail because you don't get that much light from it. So you can't spread out if you're only getting, you know, so much light and you spread it out, what happens, right? Dim flashlight, as you spread out the light further and further, you don't see anything. Same thing with the stars. You try to stretch out that light from a very faint star. You know, it looks real bright when you're looking at it small, but as you try to expand it out, you're not adding more light. You're just stretching that light and spreading it across a larger area. With the sun, you can do it. With other stars, you can't get to close this amount of, of detail. So what we have here is sort of what I started writing up here. This is just Kirchhoff's laws tell us when we get each of these type of spectra. We get a continuous spectrum 
from a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas. So a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas gives you a continuous spectrum. That takes care of a lot of stuff, right? Anything solid, anything that's a liquid, anything that's a dense gas that's heated up is going to give you a continuous spectrum, all the colors of the rainbow. An emission spectrum you get from a gas not a dense gas, a low density gas and a low density hot gas. How hot? Well hot enough that it's seen as hot as compared to whatever is behind it. So out in space that hot may be 60 degrees above, below, above absolute zero. It's still hot compared to space behind it. Might not be hot for us compared to a star, but if there's nothing else there, it's hotter than anything else around it. It's going to give you an emission spectrum. So you can have a very diffuse gas and you will see a emission spectrum. That's what we'll look at in lab uh, next week when we go through and, do, and do, that, do that lab. Actually give you a chance to look at some of the emission spectra. The absorption spectra, what we just looked at for the sun, that big long one, is, occurs when a, a continuous source, a continuous spectrum source or sources light passes through a cooler gas. Okay, so that's, that's where the sun comes in. That's where we have the sun. The sun produces an absorption spectrum because it has a continuous spectrum source down deep inside. It's got a dense gas down inside. In fact, what we see is the surface of the sun is, would be considered for these standards a dense gas. That light passes through a cooler gas, the atmosphere of the sun. Okay, the sun's not like the moon where it has a solid surface and there's nothing beyond it. It's got a surface that we see but it really just thins out. There's still more material well up above that. So the sun has a very thick atmosphere around it of material and that's what we're observing. When we figure out what the sun is made up of, we're not looking at anything down deep inside the sun. We can't see that. But we can see the material, the light pass, the light that passes through the gases around it and tell what the atmosphere and the very outer layers of the sun are made up of. When we do that, that's when we get an absorption spectrum. So we're going to see, we see these three different types of spectra. I'm going to show you two of them next week. We're going to do a look at the continuous and we'll look at the emission spectrum. Uh, absorption's a little bit harder to do, a little bit harder to create anything that you can really see well with the instruments that we have. So I can't really show you a good one. I can show you lots of pictures of it, but I don't have a real good way to uh, do this one to show you an example of an absorption spectrum. Mission is nice and easy and continuous is, is pretty easy. So I will show, we'll take a look at those next week. Now let's look at these three laws again. Same three laws, same things that we were doing. Instead of putting them in words, now they're in pictures. So we have the same two objects. There's our hot light bulb. There's the surface of the sun. There's our gas cloud or the atmosphere of the sun if you want to think about it astronomically. If you look at just the bulb, you get a continuous spectrum. That's Kirchhoff's first law. A solid, a liquid, or a dense gas, well the hot bulb is heated up, it's a filament in there that's heated up to a very high temperature and that emits a continuous spectrum. So if we look at just that, that's Kirchhoff's first law, we see the continuous spectrum. If we look at the gas cloud only, from this direction, we're looking at just the gas cloud and empty space out beyond it, then we get an emission spectrum. That's Kirchhoff's second's law. And now we're looking at just the gas cloud and we are going to see an emission spectrum. The third law for the absorption spectrum says that you're looking at this direction. You're looking through the gas cloud at that hot bulb and now you're going to see the continuous spectrum comes through there and it's absorbing, certain, certain frequencies are absorbed out, certain wavelengths are absorbed out, so they'll be missing from that. And that's what we call an absorption spectrum, Kirchhoff's third law. So just the slide helps you in terms of visualizing it, 
perhaps a little bit better. First slide was in words. This is just looking at everything in images, trying to give you an idea of how each of these form. It's the same types of things. You're not looking at different, really different objects. You're looking at these same two things to get any of these types of spectra. And we'll see primarily, uh, astronomically, you'll see either an absorption or an emission spectrum. It's very rare to have an object that really has a continuous spectrum. There's usually some kind of gas, surround, gas surrounding it. Questions? Okay. All right, now how do we get these spectral lines? Well, in order to explain why we get just those specific lines, I mean, why does hydrogen only give you that red line? Why doesn't hydrogen give you a yellow line? Now, what's so special about the red line that it wants to do that? What it happens is that this is the Bohr model of the atom. So it's a model of the atom that says that an electron orbits a proton, much like you have the sun at the center of the solar system and planets are orbiting around it. You have a proton at the center of the hydrogen atom and an electron orbiting around it. But unlike the solar system, where you could put a planet in orbit around the sun at any distance from the sun, could be real close to the sun, could be like Mercury, you could put something in orbit closer than Mercury, you could put something at the orbit of Venus, you could put something between Venus and the Earth, you could put something between Earth and Mars. When you look at these, and the electrons have very specific orbits that are allowed. In fact, there's a ground state which is as close to the proton that the electron is, electron is allowed to go. There is no stable orbit closer, closer to the proton than that. So when the electron is in its ground state where it wants to be, it has a certain orbit. Can't get any closer. If, it, if the electron gets excited, it can move to a higher orbit. But not just to a little bit higher orbit, it can't just move out a little bit. It has very specific orbits that it's allowed to move to. And there's a whole set of them. For hydrogen, one might be here, and one might be here. There's nothing in between. You can't have an orbit in between them. That's required. This, help, this model gives us the emission lines and the absorption lines that we see. Because there's only very specific orbits that the electron is allowed to have. If it could orbit anywhere it wanted to, then we'd only see continuous spectra. Because it could give us, or it could have, the, the energy could be a red line, it could be a blue line, it could be green, yellow, you know, anywhere in between. It would be allowed to be any place. But they're not. Only specific energies are allowed, meaning that the electron can only absorb certain amounts of energy. So, this is the ground state. That's, as, that's, as, that's where the electron likes to be. That's the minimal energy. If you give it a certain amount of energy, it can jump to this level. It can jump a level. If you give it too little energy, it doesn't care. The atom never sees that. That's why hydrogen only has very specific lines. Only ones corresponding to those energy, energy levels. Let me see what I did here. Nope. Okay. Whoops. Let me go back one for a second there. Wait a sec. All right. We'll get there. Okay. So. Another way to draw the energy levels is horizontally here with ground state. That's where the electron wants to be. There might be a first excited state, and a second, and a third, and actually so on up. These are where you think of these as the orbits, but stretched out to a very, very large, just stretched out almost so you see them as a line. So imagine this is a big, giant orbit. We're just looking at a little tiny portion of it. So this would be the ground state. This would be that one closest to the electron. And if you give the, the electron enough energy, and it's sitting here, if you give it just enough, it can jump there. If you try to give it a, a different amount of energy, it can't do anything. There's no stable orbit there. So if you send through that much energy, it just stays. It's going to stay right back. It's going to go right back to the ground state. It can't go up there at all. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah. The energy of, you think about it, a photon of light would come in, be absorbed, and the electron jumps. Boom. You know, like that. Jumps to a higher energy level. It also doesn't like to stay there. So it's going to jump right back down. So it absorbs energy, 
and then it comes right back down, gives off energy. So big deal, what did it just do, right? It just it absorbed a photon, it gave off the same photon, how do we know the difference? Well, if you have your light source, there's your light source, and here's your gas cloud, you have the light is sending photons towards this, right? And we're over here observing. We're observing from this side. As these photons of those specific wavelengths meet, meet an atom, they, they get absorbed, and then they get re-emitted. But that atom doesn't realize where the photon came from. So that photons, all those photons were coming from this direction. We're looking at this light source through this cloud. So all those photons that we're seeing were coming from this one direction, coming from that light source. The atom doesn't know that. It absorbs it, it re-emits it, but it might send it out that way. Might send it out that way, or straight out, or straight back. It can send it out in any direction. Whoops, crash. So when we look at the source through this gas cloud, those specific wavelengths that correspond to these energy levels are going to be disappear. There's going to be a lot less because you can go off in any direction. You're only going to get a tiny fraction that actually come back, happen to be emitted in the same direction that the original photon came from. So only a tiny fraction of them are going to be there. So you're going to get all the other, sh other colors of red are going to come straight through. That one wavelength is going to get absorbed. And the other ones that are a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, come right through. That's going to give you an absorption line. When you look from this side, now you're not looking at the light source anymore. But guess what? You're getting a few of those photons that happen to come in your direction. Added up over billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of gas atoms in that cloud, you end up seeing a whole emission line from here. You're only going to see that line. You're only going to see the light of that one color, of that specific color that corresponds to that atom. So that's why we get the emission lines. One of the other things is if you notice those lines, it only absorbs a very exact wavelength. means that those lines should be razor thin. Well, part of the reason we don't get that is what really happens with the atoms. And just to give you a rough idea here, it's not a specific orbit. So I started out telling you it's kind of like the planets orbiting around the sun. Not quite. Really, the modern theory is that there's an electron cloud. So the electron has some probability of being at different areas, and that probability peaks at where we define that orbit to be. But if you study quantum mechanics, you can't know exactly where the electron is. So one of the quirks of quantum mechanics is that if you try to measure that electron, you can never find its position exactly. So it's most likely in this range, but it could be in closer, it could be in further away. So those energy levels are a little bit fuzzy, and that gives us a little bit of width to the lines. Just because there isn't a very well-defined exact orbit like the Earth's orbit around the sun. The orbits of the electrons aren't defined exactly the same way. There's a range, so it could be jumping from here, you know, somewhere around here, a little bit less or a little bit more. Maybe get a little bit uh, less energy, a little bit longer wavelength photon. Could be a little bit less. Not a big change. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to turn a red line into a green line. But you can spread out that red line a little bit and actually give it some width to it. And that's why we saw when we looked at those images, you didn't see just a really thin line. You had a little bit broader line when we looked at them. So the whole idea there is really just the idea of a cloud, that there's a probability of where the electron actually is. Now here's some, I started showing you this here, but here's a couple more images of what you can get for the forming spectral lines. And when the photon comes in of just the right amount of energy, it excites that electron just enough to jump it up, say, one energy level. If it does that, the only thing that electron can do is jump back down again. It wants to be in the ground state. That's the most stable place for it. So it wants to jump back down here. And it will immediately do that. Photon may have come in from this direction. It may go out in this direction. It could go out in any random direction. And not just a random d direction in here, but a random direction in space. So imagine any place on a sphere, you could be sending that photon off randomly. Now that's a, an example of a, a direct direct decay. Went up, went right back down to where it was before. The other thing that you can do is you can cascade. 
cascade means you send that same, send a little bit higher energy photon in. It's got a little bit more energy. So instead of exciting the electron up one space, it excites it up two. Now, now the electron has two choices as to what to do. And there's some probability that it will do either one. When you get down to studying this, it's all a matter of studying probabilities. You know, it has some percent chance of jumping straight back down and giving off a photon of exactly the same wavelength. Or it has some probability of jumping down one step, going down one energy level, and giving off a longer wavelength photon. And then jumping down again and giving off another photon. Those two energies add up to the energy that came in. So you're still back to zero. There's still no energy that's come or gone. But you've given off two photons, in this case, a visible photon and an ultraviolet photon, as compared to a very high energy ultraviolet photon in the first, first slide. So you can have two different things that can, occur, that can occur there. Either you can jump right back down where you came from, and there's multiple energy levels. So you can imagine this might get a little more complex if you go up higher. If you go up to you know fourth energy level and you excite it up there, well then do you drop straight back down? Do you drop down here and then here and then here and then here? Or any combination? Do you go down two levels and then two? Two and then one? And Imagine when you get up to you know 20, they go up forever. So there's 20, 100, 1,000 energy levels. You can get some very unusual ones that can occur. Each has its own probability of dropping back down at, at certain, in a certain way. So certain ones we see primarily, usually the lower ones. The lower ones are the most common. But there are other ones that can occur as well. Now, it gets even more complicated when you look at um, more complicated atoms. I was usually using that for hydrogen. But if you have a helium atom, now you have two electrons to excite. So you can have more, you can have more energy. When you have a, what is it here, one, two, six. You have a carbon atom here. Now you have two electrons in close, four electrons out further. You can excite one of those and you have multiple energy levels. You have multiple levels because you have so many more electrons. So they get, it gets a lot more complicated. I've given you the very basics that I want you to understand for hydrogen. We don't need to understand the details for the more complex atoms, but you need to understand that they get a lot more complicated. It's not as easy to be able to tell what is What's going to happen? We can do it. There are calculations. You can go through and do the same types of calculations. Just get a lot more complicated. The other thing that changes is if you ionize the atom. Ionization is stripping an electron off of the atom. Now, if you do that with hydrogen, it doesn't do too much, right? You strip off the electron from hydrogen, you've got a proton, right? You've got no electrons. You've got no electrons to jump between energy levels. You've got no lines. So. Hydrogen's pretty easy. But helium, you can see helium with two electrons. If you get helium hot enough to strip off one of the electrons, now you have helium with just one electron. That's called ionized helium. It has a completely different set of energy levels. So if you look at that, you can find lines of ionized helium. You can find lines of neutral helium. Depends on how high the temperatures are, which ones you're going to see. But it's a completely different set of, set of lines. So helium shows one set of lines. If you strip an electron off that helium, it gives you a completely different set of lines. Very high temperatures to do that for helium. Helium is, you're talking 20, 30, 40,000 degrees, many times hotter than the sun. Yeah. Yes, helium, helium is tough. But other atoms aren't. Uh, iron. Iron, it's easy to strip off a couple electrons. In the atmosphere of the sun, you can see iron that's been ionized 10, 12 times. Iron has 26 electrons. You can take half of them off. And we can see, we can see ions of that. But you think about that, you've got, you've got iron neutral. you got with one electron taken off. That's a different set of lines. You've got two electrons taken off, another set of lines. How many different sets of lines you have to try to be able to figure out brings you some of the idea, even beyond the complexity of what I showed you with the sun, in order to be able to understand all of this. Uh, temperature primarily, pressure. I guess if you get a high enough pressure, you could probably knock at least some of the electrons off by, if 
by pressure and motion too, but I'm not as, temperature is primarily what I'm familiar with. All right, the other thing that can get you complicated, let's see if we're right about, yep, we're right about there, okay, is that if we look at a molecular spectrum. So if we look at a, sp a spectrum of a molecule, hydrogen is normally found. Hydrogen gas that you think of is actually a molecule. It's two hydrogen atoms together. That's the hydrogen that we're familiar with. Out in space, some of the hydrogen, if it's hot enough, is just single atomic hydrogen, one hydrogen atom. So that's the molecule. This is the hydrogen atom. As it got more complex when you ionize something, or when you added more electrons, it really gets complex when you or add in a molecule. Now you have two hydrogen atoms together. There's not just the energy levels, but there's things about the way it vibrates. The two molecules actually don't stay still relative to each other. They're vibrating slightly, and you can get energy levels from vibration. You can get energy levels from how it's rotating around each other. So you can get all sorts of energy levels, and here's the hydrogen simple spectrum that we looked at before. Again, we'll look at that in the tubes uh, next week. Same, hydro same hydrogen, just in a mo molecular form. Just formed as hydrogen molecules. It's a lot more lines. The blue and the violet there, almost continuous. You're seeing just about everything there. Drops off a little bit, although there are some very faint lines scattered in here. A lot up to the red again. Not quite as big as down there, but a lot more lines. One line here, ton of lines between where you get that, between one and the other. Molecules get very, very complicated spectra. Normally, most stars do not show molecules. Only the coolest of the stars will actually show molecules. Typically, in a very hot star, even like the sun, the hydrogen molecules will be broken apart. It's so hot, they're smashing around, and those two, those two atoms, they can't stay together. It's so hot, they're ripped apart. To get a very cool star, half the temperature of the sun, then those atoms can actually combine, and there's enough energy. They have enough binding power to actually stay together at those temperatures. So the very cool stars show a lot of molecules. The very high hot stars do not. Uh, you can see some with iron. Titanium is a big one. Titanium oxide is a big one that we do see in the sun. It's a relatively strong bond. So you can actually see that in the sun. When you look at, um, not counting the sun, but if you look at other gas clouds, you can see things like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and you can detect those molecules out in space as well. So there's lots of, lots of different ones. The hotter it is, the more, the strong, more strong bond you need for that, for that hydrogen. Questions? Well, we're just about out. So what I covered is we got through section 2.6. I didn't cover section 2. I vaguely mentioned 2.7 on the Doppler effect. I'm not going to try to rush through that now and cut, into, cut too much into the lab class because that'll take me a good 15 minutes to go, to go through. So the exam will end at 2.6. So I won't include anything on 2.7. Doesn't mean you never have to know it. You'll probably see it at question or two on exam 2. So I'll cover that afterwards. But that way we'll still do the exam on Monday. I'll just cut it off. I won't ask you questions about the Doppler effect. So we'll do that, and if you want to take a break for a couple minutes, I'll get our rest of our lab set up.